His kingdom is forever, church. His kingdom is forever. What a joy. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're getting back into the gospel of John as we're continuing to work through it. And we have a wonderful text to meditate on this morning together. I'm excited to spend our time looking at John chapter 12 verses 1 through 11 together this morning. The word of God reads, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? And given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here together. We thank you for another day to live. We thank you, Lord, that you've brought us into another year. Lord, you've been so good to us, so kind, so patient, so merciful, so loving. You've provided us with all that we have, Lord. And so we thank you. God, we want this morning and this year to be one in which we seek you more faithfully, Lord one in which we, we read more and we worship more and we do it with more of our heart, Lord, that we, than we've ever had before, one where we understand you more, one where we cherish you more, one where who you are where it impacts the way that, that we live more and more, Lord. We ask you to do that great work in our hearts, God. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. With a new year comes a lot of new plans, a lot of reflecting. Maybe some of you think about the last year and you think about all the things that you wanted to do that you didn't do, that you failed to do, that you thought at the beginning of the year, these are the things that are worthwhile, but then sometime from the beginning of the year to the, you know, depending on who you are, what you did, how long it took, you, there became a disconnect between what you considered a worthy cause and your actions. And that seems to happen to all of us. All of us are constantly making choices, and all the choices and the plans that we make, we are communicating what we think is worthwhile, or what we think is valuable, or what we think is important, or what we think is priority. And those persons or causes or activities that we consider worthwhile are the ones that we want to do. And ideally, those things that we do do. So when we look at this year, what is it that you want to do this year? What is it that you want to do this month? What is it that you want to do today? What person or, or cause do you consider worthy of rearranging your whole life around 
and serving. What person or cause do you consider worthy of extravagant financial giving? What person or cause do you consider worthy of attaching yourself to and even being willing to suffer for? Do you value your own life and goals more than any other? Then guess what? You're going to serve yourself. Do you value building your own little kingdom? Then you're going to spend all your resources on yourself. Do you value your life as the most precious thing that you have? Then you're going to save and try at all costs to protect yourself. But if you value Jesus and his mission more than any other person or cause, then you will serve him. And if you value Jesus and his mission more than any other person or cause, then you will give sacrificially to him. And if you value Jesus and his mission more than your own comfort and ease, then you will be ready and willing to suffer for him. What do you consider worthy of suffering and giving and serving? These questions should cause a division for us if we have believers and non-believers here. Because as believers, we evaluate things differently now that we have believed in Christ. There has been a a dramatic, a, a seismic shift that has happened in the way that we evaluate things when we came to know Christ. Because we knew at one point when we were not in Christ, we knew what it was like to live without Christ. We knew what it was like to esteem Christ not, to, to think of him as, as insignificant and unimportant to our lives. We, we lived that way. We despised him. We thought he was a joke. We thought there was nothing significant about this man who lived 2,000 years ago and was, was crucified. Nothing about him that would make us think highly of him. Nothing about him that would make us stop what we're doing and reprioritize everything in our lives for him. But then God, in his kindness, and his mercy, and his grace, opened our eyes, put people in our lives to tell us about Jesus. And when we looked at these people, at first we thought they were crazy. But there's something about them that we appreciated. And they didn't live like other people were living. They didn't live how we were living. And as weird and foreign as it was, there's something about it that we respected. Because we could see in their eyes and the integrity of their lives that they lived for someone greater than themselves. And that caught our attention and piqued our interest. And so we listened a little bit more. And they told us the reason for it. They said it was Jesus. And they taught us about Jesus. Then we ourselves went and read about Jesus. And God in his grace opened our eyes to see that this man, Jesus, if he is, where the scriptures say he is, who the scriptures say he is, if he did the things the scriptures say that he did, then he is the absolute most important person in the world. His person and his mission are, are to take absolute priority above everything else. You see, we were changed when we began to believe that and see that. And we, Paul says, in, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.16, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no more. What is he saying there? He's saying, we used to look at Christ from a worldly perspective and see him as like, you know, lame and weak and you died on a cross, dude. Like, you know, that's not that impressive. I don't think that you really rose from the dead. But we don't regard him according to worldly standards. We don't regard him as foolish or insignificant anymore. We, we regard him thus no longer. We esteem Christ. We honor Christ. Christ. We see Christ as of great importance and worth. And so we seek to live for Christ. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then he is worthy of everything that we could give, of everything that we could do. He's worthy of all honor and glory.
that we could ever offer him in our lives. We can never give him enough. The Gospel of John alone, I believe, is, is, an reason, or is reason enough to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is truly unsurpassable in his worth. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we're told that this Jesus was the Son of God who existed eternally with the Father. And that all things were made through him. And that he then took a human nature to himself and became incarnate. He became a man who walked this earth. And he was the son who came to reveal the father and come and die a sacrificial death for every sinner who would believe in him so that they might be saved. In the second chapter of the Gospel of John, we saw him, him functioning with miraculous power and turning water to wine. In the third chapter of the Gospel of John, we heard that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In John chapter 4, we saw Jesus showing himself a prophet at the, when he met the, the Samaritan woman at the well. But not only that, but also the promised Messiah, the Christ, the one who is to come into the world. Later in that chapter, he, he healed an official son. In the next chapter, we see him, we see him uh, healing a, a man who laid paralyzed for 38 years. And when questioned why he did it on the Sabbath, he told them that, he was, uh, that his father is working until now and that I am working. And they got mad at him because they, they thought that he was making himself equal with God. And Jesus responded to them, that he only does what the Father shows him to do and assured them that the Father has authorized the Son to do the types of things that only the Father can do, so, such as resurrection and judgment, so that all would honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In the sixth chapter, we see Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish and then proclaim himself to be the bread of life. Proclaim himself to be the bread that came down from heaven. That if anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. And then further explains that the bread that he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. In the eighth chapter, we see him claim to be the light of the world. And that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In the ninth chapter, we see him proving that he's the light of the world by miraculously turning on the lights. For a man who was born blind. In the 10th chapter, he claimed to be the good shepherd who knows his sheep, protects his sheep, and even lays down his life for his sheep. And then in chapter 11, he claimed to be the resurrection and the life and then proved it. He didn't just claim it, but then also proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead. So if you missed the I don't know how long it's been since we started John the first year. If you missed all of John chapter 1 through 12, you're caught up. And hopefully now you can see that if he is what John the Apostle is describing, if these things are true of him, that he is the most important, most amazing, just most incredible person that we could ever have the honor of knowing and loving and serving how could we not want to take every action in our life, every decision in our life, and use it to clearly communicate his glory and his honor? And I believe that's exactly what this text is going to help us do this morning. So the main idea of John chapter 12 verses 1 through uh, 11 is that we see three practices that clearly communicate the value of Christ so that we will honor him and help others to see his matchless worth. So let's begin. The first practice, if you want to clearly communicate the value of Christ and honor him with your life and help others to see his matchless worth, then do it by serving faithfully. Do it by serving faithfully. Make it your practice to serve him faithfully. When you think of your life, when other people look at your life, do they see someone who is serving Christ faithfully? 
You know that someone is of immense importance and value to another if they consider it a priority to faithfully serve them. And I believe one person in particular in our passage is an excellent example of one who considers Jesus worth serving faithfully, and that is Martha. Look at how she's mentioned here in verses 1 and 2. It says in verse 1, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Jesus was, who, or excuse me, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Martha thinks that Christ is worthy. She has a high view of him. How could she not? What just happened in her life? I mean, she already knows a lot of stuff about Jesus, has heard a lot of stuff about Jesus, has heard Jesus teaching, has spoke with Jesus. She's a good friend of Jesus. But on top of all that, Jesus came and healed and raised and raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. Right after Jesus proclaimed to her that that would happen, he then fulfilled his promise and did it. Martha is convinced that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that Anyone who believes in him, though he dies, yet he will live. Martha loves Jesus. Martha considers Jesus of great worth. And this comes out subtly and just simply in the fact that when Jesus comes back to Bethany, she's willing and ready and quick to set up the dinner party for him. She's here serving like we've seen her serving in other places. She is a servant I love in, in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about how we each have gifts d- that differ according to the grace given to us. And one of the ones he mentions there is service. And he says that as, as we each have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he says, if service in our serving, that's what Martha is doing. She wants to serve. Let me set up the table. Let me bring out the food. Let me make sure that this is a hospital welcoming thing. Let's give Jesus a dinner. Let's honor him and thank him and show appreciation for what he has done for our family and for our village and what he's going to do for the whole world. She wants to serve him. She takes her time. She takes her talent and she offers it to Christ in a simple way by just serving at this dinner party. And she does so in a way that shows that it is a token of continual gratitude that she has for Christ. And so a simple, just applicational thought for us, you guys, would be, do you use your time and talent to serve the Lord? Do you use your time and talent to serve the Lord? When you think about the, the spread of you, the hours of the day and the things that you do in a week and, and all of that, when people look at it, do they see someone who is serving the Lord, using their time, using their talents to build up Christ's church and his kingdom? Now, you may think, well, if Jesus came over to my house, I'd be serving too. <laughs> so how, how, do we, how do we, is there a way for us to still serve him even though he's ascended into heaven? And that he's not coming over to any of our house for dinner tonight? Of course there is. Because if you serve his body, Jesus says, you're serving me. Just like I would say, if you're serving my wife, then you're serving me. If you're serving Christ's bride, then you're serving him. If you get something for my children, you've gotten something for me. Jesus would even say when he returns and he separates the sheep from the goats, he says that those who, 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 who he welcomes into eternal life, he says this about them. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then it says the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. So yeah, Jesus might not be coming over to your, you know, your house for pizza tonight, but you can still serve him 
Even though he's at the right hand of the Father, you can still serve him. You can still use your time and talent to build up his church, to, to, to help the, the spread of the gospel. You can use your time and your talent to feed and to welcome and to host and to clothe and to visit and to teach and to train and to model and to rebuke and to encourage and to love and to correct and to worship with people and to fellowship with people and to open up your homes and to love people who are different from you and to sacrifice for them, to love them, to encourage them, to help them to follow Christ. You can welcome the elderly. You can welcome married couples. You can welcome single people. You can welcome the children. You can love them all and help them all to follow Christ. That's what he saves you to do. This is how we serve Christ. May we be a church that serves Christ. Maybe we be those who, 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 who plan intentionally together to do the work of the gospel. Throw a dinner party. Invite your Christian friends. Invite your non-Christian friends. Share the gospel. Talk about Christ. Just introduce them. Let them just give a testimony of what Christ did in their lives. But labor together, work together, and serve one another and serve together. May we use our time and our talents to serve faithfully because the risen and exalted Christ is worthy of it. He's worthy of it. His mission is our greatest priority. And so may we communicate clearly the worth of Christ through how we serve, just as Martha did. This leads to our second practice that I believe clearly communicates the worth of Christ, and that is sacrificing financially. Sacrificing financially. And at this point, you guys are like, oh, man. The sermon was going so good to you. <laughs> so you started talking about sacrificing financially. I'm cool with the service part, Jeff. Why you got to bring this one up? Well, because you know very well that someone is of immense importance and value to someone else. That that is shown when a person considers them worth spending a lot of money on when they're worth sacrificing financially for. And Mary is a wonderful example of this in our text. If you want to honor Christ and help others see his matchless worth, then like Mary, do it by sacrificing financially. Look, what we see, look at this in verse 3. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now that's an amazing description. I think foreign to a lot of us. We think that maybe that's a little weird. Um, it was customary for expectations for hospitality to, you know, bring water for a person to wash their feet or even have a servant come and wash the person's feet because to touch someone's feet is like, that's, that's a lowly thing. That's a humiliating thing, a humbling thing to clean someone's feet. And also it's customary to provide oil for someone's head when they, they came, came over to your place. But Mary goes beyond what is the normal customs for hospitality and what she did. And everything I believe about this event uh, communicated the, the utmost humility and also sacrifice for, uh, for, for Mary and the utmost honor for Christ. Think about where she anointed Jesus. She anointed his feet. Think about how she wiped that ointment off. What did she use? Not a rag, but her hair. She anointed Jesus with an expensive ointment. And she anointed him with an ointment that was not only expensive, but she used a whole bunch of it. Let's consider these briefly. Mary anoints Jesus' feet, which shows tremendous humility. To wash someone's feet was, was, was a lowly, servant-like task, task. But it's a task that Jesus will teach his disciples later in John that they should also do for one another. But Mary's beating them to it. Here she is, anointing her Savior's feet. 
But not only that, she wipes with her hair. Why would she wipe with her hair? I was trying to think about this. Can somebody get married like a towel <laughs> or like a rag or, you know? And, and I, I think we have to admit that we're speculating a little bit, but I think it's because she felt that the rag would not honor Christ as much as wiping it off with her own hair would. It's also possible that by wiping off this ointment from Christ's feet with her hair, that she was then taking with her the exact same fragrance that she had just dumped on Christ. And so her and Christ would be smelling the exact same. And so she's going from that place smelling like Christ. She has this fragrance in her hair. And I don't know about you, but you ever have those moments where you're like, either you'd pass by somewhere, you walk through somewhere, and, and you smell something, and it just, boom, sends you back like 10 years, 5 years, or, or just brings you right back to some other experience that, that you had. I guarantee that this was a, a thing like that for Mary and for the rest of those because it's the rest of the disciples there. It says that the, the scent of this, this fragrance filled the house. Anytime anyone smelt this, I'm sure they thought about this moment in Mary's humility and the way that she wanted to honor Christ. And so she anointed his feet. She wiped with her hair, but then she anointed him not just with anything. She didn't just, you know, let me get some, let me get some cheap stuff and, you know, pour on Jesus. But it says that this ointment was expensive ointment. It had great value. It, it says that it was made from pure nard. And a lot of the commentators believe that this, this ointment uh, that's described here was, was uh, from an oil that was ex- extracted out of a plant grown in India. And so this was imported, if you will. This is like a specialty item, a a super expensive good. She's not being cheap here. And then we see, furthermore, the amount that she anoints him with. It says that Mary took a pound and anointed the feet of Jesus. My wife loves when I rub her feet. How many of the, the wives here would love if their husbands rubbed their feet more? Anyone willing? Some are like, no, don't even touch my feet. Right? Well, my wife loves when I rub her feet, and to my shame, I don't rub them often enough. Uh, but when I do, I remember one time that I was looking, you know, uh, at the lotion that I had, and, and I was cracking up because it said, apply liberally. <laughs> it was like, I'm just looking at this, apply liberally. And I'm like, well, of course they want me to apply liberally, so I, what? Buy more. <laughs> right? But so if you think something is, is, is cheap, you might be willing to apply liberally. But if you think something is very expensive, what are you going to do? Drop? You know, like, let me just get this uh, little one-finger dollop, you know. Uh, but here is Mary, and she, she has a pound. She says, a pound, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna to dump the whole thing out. And so even the amount is just communicating tremendous amount of, 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 of honor, and we don't really get this it, it, until I think Judas speaks up. Because Mary, what Mary does is, is not stingy, it's selfless, it's incredibly generous, and so generous that it's scandalously sacrificial financially. That, that, that Judas and the other, uh, in Matthew and Mark, their accounts also mentions not just Judas, but the disciples, so at least some others. We're on the same page with what Judas said here. And Judas says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? In Matthew, it says the disciples were indignant, saying, why this waste? And in Mark, they scolded Mary. How dare you, Mary? They weren't weren't upset because Mary, you know, used too little or gave too little. They were upset that she gave too much. So they ask, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? How much is 300 denarii? How much is 300 denarii? A denarii is an average worker's day's wage. So 300 denarii would be pretty much a year of wages for an average worker. 
Now, you guys, you guys should, maybe you're starting to feel a little bit like Judas and the disciples. You're like, wait, wait, I'm going to do the math on that. So let's just ballpark. Let's say, you know, someone makes 50000 That's an average wage. I know we have a medium wage in California of about thirty. We have an average wage of, in California about 60000 But whatever, you pick your number 30 or 60, she dumped it out on Jesus. Is he really worth all that? Could, could it, couldn't it have been used for, for some, some greater use? Or couldn't, think of all the poor people that we could have taken care of. It was a lot of money. That's an extremely valuable thing. I, I've never been around someone who just dropped 60 G's on something right in front of me. I heard Shaq one time spent 60 or 70 G's at Walmart. And they called him, and they're like, hey, dude, someone's got your card. He's like, oh, no, it's me. And they're like, what are you buying at Walmart for 70000 And he had, like, just moved to, uh, to a new place where he's going to play at. And he, so he bought everything for his apartment. He's like, I had to get five TVs, you know. Like, he's just, like, going on about how he spent seventy grand, dropped seventy grand because he considered himself that important, his time that important that, hey, it needs to be set up, it needs to be ready, it needs to go. Martha, excuse me, Mary here considers Jesus this has to be her most expensive item she considers Jesus worth it all and then some she thought that she was being worshipful she loved Christ she wanted to honor Christ she wanted to give her best to Christ Christ was of such a matchless worth to her that she was willing to pour this out on his feet and it was not wasteful to her. And even more importantly, it was not wasteful to Jesus. Jesus comes to her defense and says, leave her alone. <laughs> I love that. That's one of my favorite things Jesus says. Leave her alone. Like, like back off, disciples. Leave her alone. And he says, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And Jesus' statement here is, is, is essentially, I think, uh, what Mark and Matthew say in their text. The one in John, the, the grammar's a little bit more difficult. There's a couple different options you could take. But I think the NIV hits it here when it says, It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. I like that. But it makes us wonder, how much does Mary know? That, you know... Uh, Mary, did you know, that's, that's Jesus' mom is Mary, but Mary of Bethany, did you know that, that Jesus was so close to his death? Did you know that when you poured out that ointment on his feet that he, you were preparing him for, for, his, for being entombed for his death? Mary of Bethany, did you know? I, I don't know if she knew. It's possible that she knew. A lot of commentators think that she knew and that that was why she, was, she wanted to do that. And that's definitely possible. She knew Jesus. She was well acquainted with his teaching. Jesus had predicted his death on a number of occasions. And so she might be understanding that and doing that. Uh, but also, she, it might, might just be that she wanted to love and honor Jesus and give him a gift for what, she had, uh, what he had done for, for their family and for Lazarus. And so she wanted to honor him. And then Christ sees this as a providence of God and her having held, and awaited and held on to this until the time when she would anoint Jesus, even unbeknownst to herself, in anticipation of his death. Either way. Christ himself is worthy of such an anointing and the fact that he will soon die and ascend and, uh, and not be with them any longer adds urgency and importance and rationale to the anointing and furthermore, it brings great honor to him. Time is running out. Jesus will not be at a lot more dinners with you guys. Honor him while he's here and that's exactly what Mary does. Jesus says, you will not always have me. And after that says, the, but the poor you, you will always have. And the point here isn't that Jesus, uh, Jesus wants to diminish in any way care for the poor. But the point is that there is a special opportunity before them. And so it was by no means a waste for her to do what she did. 
Jesus receives it as a tremendous honor and credits it and counts it as an anointing in preparation for his burial. Mary sacrificed financially. And you and I have the opportunity to do the exact same thing. When you look at your budget, when you plan your stuff out, when you think about how am I using my money, what sort of things am I purchasing, you and I have the opportunity to say, Christ, Christ, I want to honor you. I want to use my money for you. I want to show that you are my Messiah and master and money is not. My pleasures are not. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But that's exactly what Judas does, or tries to do. And this was one of Judas's flaws. He loved money more than the Messiah. John narrates for us after Judas says, why is this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? John tells us that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas did not consider Christ worth sacrificing financially for. Judas loved money, and he valued it more than Christ. And his heart was so fixed on money that he could not see, he had no eyes to see Mary's extravagant gift as something that was worthwhile. If Judas considered Jesus as worthy of such great worth, I don't think he would be upset at Mary here. But we get a sense for how much Judas did not value Christ, and that he was willing to accept a bribe. He was, he was willing to betray Christ, and he would betray Christ for 30 silver pieces. Judas was a thief, and stealing is the polar opposite of sacrificial giving. You see, in sacrificial giving, you guys, you give what is yours, and you you give a lot of it. In stealing, you take what is not yours, and typically you take as much as you can think that you can get away with. But the Lord sees all. The Lord knows all. And all will have to give an account to him for how they've used their resource, resources or how they stole and took others' resources without asking. And so just another applicational thought for you to, to just think about. Are you a thief? Are you a thief? Are you taking what does not belong to you? Are you taking without permission things that belong to other people? Are you a thief? Do you do it in small ways? Do you do it in what you might consider medium ways or large ways? Do you take from your friends? Do you take from your family? Do you take from your parents? Do you, do you take from your government? Do you take from uh, your church? Do you, do you take from anyone? That which does not belong to you. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is worth being poor for. If you are poor, you do not steal. Proverbs 16:8 says, better is a little with righteousness then great revenues with injustice. God loves the poor. God blesses those who help the poor. Uh, we see in Proverbs 19, verse 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. God says, you hook up the poor and the needy, and I will take care of you. And on the flip side of that, he says, if you close your heart and you're stingy, then you are going to be punished for that. Proverbs 28, verse 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Listen to these words. These are piercing. The prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 16, 49, says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. 
but did not aid the poor and needy. Pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Brothers and sisters, may we be a people who individually and as a church give to the poor. If you're thinking, how do I give to Christ? How do I financially sacrifice for Christ when I can't, you know, pour out expensive things on his feet? Well, you give sacrificially to the, the, the needs and the people and the causes that Christ has said. And the two that Christ has emphasized is the needy and also the church. And so be sacrificially generous. Acts chapter 2 says that the early church had all things in common. They were selling possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. In Acts chapter 4, there was not a needy person among them, it says, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Paul says in Acts 20, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, that in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. How do I give sacrificially to Christ when he's at the right hand of the Father? You give to the poor and the needy and you give to the church. And you use your, your resources and your financial uh, strength to advance the gospel and build up the church. That's how you do it. And I just want to say there's been and continues to be an amazing overflow of generosity by the individuals and members in this church from the beginning until today. By God's grace, we pray that it will continue both personally between individuals and also through uh, giving to general fund and benevolence work, many saints of Redeemed South Bay, I applaud you and commend you, brothers and sisters, have sacrificed greatly and generously. So let me just say thank you. Thank you. It's honoring to Christ. It's pleasing to him. But more than all that, it also communicates clearly his worth to others. The world doesn't understand that. Why do you give what you give? <laughs> but even those in the church could struggle with it. Judas struggled with what Mary was giving. How much more the people outside? So don't worry if they understand it or not. You just give because you love him, because you want to honor him, because he's worth it. And this, this leads to our third practice. If you want to honor Christ and help others see his matchless value, then do it by suffering fearlessly. You know that someone or some cause is of immense importance and value if someone is willing to, to suffer for it. Whether that suffering is social, economic, professional, emotional, or physical. When someone is willing to suffer for something else. It communicates the worth and value of that thing. Many people have laid down their lives for their king and their country and their families because they considered the, the, the honor and also the protection and the well-being of them of great value. And so when people suffer and are willing to endure whatever comes their way, it speaks volumes about that thing which they're willing to suffer for. And it should be no different for us when it comes to Christ. We should be willing to suffer for him. When I speak in this point of suffering fearlessly, what I mean by that is not that you never experience any internal feelings of weakness or doubt or fear, but, but that you don't allow your experience of these internal desires to keep you from being publicly identified with Christ or from testifying to the truth of Christ. You don't shrink back. You may be scared. You may be frightened, but you don't shrink back. And in that way, you embody a humble fearlessness and willingness to suffer. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that he came to the Corinthians in weakness and in fear with much trembling. And he said that this was for their benefit because then they could be certain that their faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So friends, if you feel weak, if you feel afraid, if, you, if you're scared to be identified with Christ and to, to endure what comes along with that, hold on to Christ 
And in your shaking, don't give up and don't turn back. Stand your ground and endure. Mary is a good example, I think, of this. She shows a sort of fearless suffering. Uh, how long do you think she thought about it before she put that ointment on Jesus' feet? What do you think that she thought that the rest of the disciples were going to say to her when she did that? She did it anyways. She did it anyways. Lazarus, likewise, in, in this text, we're told in uh, verses 9 through 11 that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And it says, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus is in a weird situation because Jesus raises him from the dead. But in doing so, he has to make a decision whether he wants to let people come and see him and verify and prove the rumors are true. Or whether he's just going to lay low. Because if, if he verifies and proves that the rumors are true and people go off and believe in him and that he gets added to the hit list... He could very well lose his life. But Lazarus is there. He's reclining at this dinner. He's seen by large crowds and groups, and people are amazed. And I think that he probably testified to them, and if not with words, I mean, just his presence. But most likely, they're all interested. What, happened? what was it like? You know, all these questions. And Lazarus was willing to be identified with Christ, willing to be publicly seen, that it might be confirmed that Jesus is Truly the resurrection and the life, come what may. But not only Mary and Lazarus show this, I believe that there's hints that they're just following their Savior in this same thing. Jesus himself, we, we, we see hints in this text of his great love and willingness to suffer. We look in verse, verse 7 and 8, Jesus says that you will not always have me. What do you mean, Jesus? You will not always have me because Jesus is about to die and then raise and then go to heaven. Moreover, Jesus speaks about his burial. Let her, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus is saying, my suffering is here. It's in the closest proximity. It's just about to happen. More than that, we also see that, that uh, Lazarus is it, that the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. As well as what? If we turn back and look at chapter 11, verse 53, it says, From that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. So Jesus was already on the hit list. And so when it says that they made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, that's what it's, it's referencing. Lazarus and Jesus on this hit list. And they're willing to die. Jesus is willing to die. Jesus goes and suffers this death. He is our Passover lamb. One other possible hint is in verse 1 when it says six days before the Passover. The feast that celebrates the exodus and the lambs that were sacrificed for the death angel to pass over the Hebrew homes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that our Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so this might not be trying to necessarily point us in that direction, but we, we can't help but notice, is there a better time for God's son to be sacrificed for the sins of the world? Is there a better time for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to be killed and to be put to death than at the time of Passover? Jesus was willing to do all this, and he did. He suffered and died. He wanted to do it to honor his father. He was willing to suffer, and he did so fearlessly to save sinners like you and me. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friend, if you're here and you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, I plead with you to not allow the pressure from friends or family to, to lead you to reject Christ, to not give Christ a, a real chance, to not be willing to humble yourself and say, what does the, this text teach about him and what difference would that make in my life if that's true? 
Because the stakes are high. And I call you to follow the truth. Follow the truth. Follow Jesus. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in him. He says that he is the way and the truth and the life. May you follow him. He predicted that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. Then he raised him from the dead. Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. And then he himself was raised as well. He did all of this so that if we believe in him, if we turn from our sin, we will be forgiven. So I plead with you if you're here and you haven't done that yet to to do that. To become one of his disciples. To repent and be baptized. And to join us as we help one another follow him and teach others to follow him as well. If you want to honor Christ and help others see his surpassing and matchless worth, suffer fearlessly for him. The Apostle Paul himself faced many trials, many imprisonments, beatings, danger on the road, hillsides, conflicts between people, Gentiles and Jews, conflicts outside, conflicts in families, conflict in, in, his, in the churches. And Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. That's a lot. He suffered a lot. And he says, Yet from them the Lord has rescued me from them all. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. When you are serving Christ, when you are sacrificing for Christ, and when you are suffering for Christ, you are going to encounter many mockings, many revilings. You're going to be the joke of the world. You're going to experience a lot of conflicts trying to be faithful to Christ, serving in this church or any church. For you to follow Christ will mean difficulty for you. There will be trouble in this world. But Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. I want you to know that you can avoid all that trouble. Just don't follow Christ. Just stay home. Spend all your time watching shows. Entertain yourself till, till either Jesus comes or you die. And you won't experience any of that suffering. It's a clear, easy way, pathway for you to do that. But that would not be honoring to Christ. That would not be a way to communicate his matchless worth to those around you. And so may you and I this year follow him because he's worthy of it all. Every ounce of suffering, every type of suffering, every moment of suffering, everything that way that we could serve him, every way that we could sacrifice for him, every moment that we can suffer for him, Christ is worth it. Father, thank you for this time. Help us to lay these things to heart and help us to see and treasure your matchless worth and put it on display for others to see. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.